Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This month is all about cancer survivorship. So if you missed the episode two weeks ago with Kristen Carroll and Jillian Schmidt, make sure you go back and listen to that episode. Lots of great information, especially for providers on how to treat people with cancer currently or cancer survivors. Now, today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth, and tomorrow, which is Tuesday, April 20th, NetHealth has a three-part mini-webinar series with best-selling author Stacey Fitzsimmons and Kelly Caschio of NetHealth. They'll be talking about the three T's of creating revenue ownership beyond just, billing, beyond just the billing department, training tools, and transparency. Stacy and Kelly have over 25 years of combined experience helping private practices give the best possible care while increasing their revenue. Head over to nethealth.com slash Litzy to sign up. As a bonus, if you put Litzy in the comment section and show up, they've arranged for NetHealth to buy lunch for your office. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y. So head over and sign up now. And moving on to today's episode, again, following in our theme of the month, which is cancer survivorship, I'm thrilled to have on the program Dr. Lisa Van Hoos. She is an assistant professor and program director in the physical therapy department at the University of Louisiana Monroe. Dr. Van Hoos received her PhD in rehab science and MPH from the University of Kansas Medical Center. She completed fellowships at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences, Donald W. Reynolds Institute on Aging, and the National Institute of Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute Pride Summer Institute with an emphasis in cardiovascular genetic epidemiology. Her Bachelor of Science in Health Science and Master of Science in Physical Therapy were completed at the University of Central Arkansas. Dr. Van Hoos has practiced oncologic physical therapy since 1996. She is a board-certified clinical specialist in oncologic physical therapy. As an NIH PCORI and industry-funded researcher, Dr. Van Hoos investigates socio-ecological models of cancer-related side effects with an emphasis on minority and rural cancer survivorship. She has been an advocate for movement of all persons, including the elimination of social policies and practices that are barriers to movement-friendly environments. She served as a 2012 to 2016 president of the Academy of Oncologic Physical Therapy of the APTA. She currently provides oncology rehab services through the Ujima Institute PLLC as the owner and service provider. So on today's episode, what do we talk about? Well, it's all about the provider. So in today's episode, Lisa talks about implicit provider bias, survivorship as a concept, social determinants of and the healthcare and healthcare access and provider trust. So how can physical therapists help lessen the overload? How do you determine whether or not you're a trustworthy provider? 
We'll hear about effects of cancer on co-survivors, get some advice for screening when working with cancer survivors, and learn about the disease burden on marginalized communities. So there's lots to dive in. This is a long episode, um, but it is well worth it. I highly encourage you uh, to listen to the very end because everything is so good and you will get so much information from Dr. Van Hoos. So I want to thank her and thank NetHealth and thank you for listening. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the podcast. I am very happy and honored to have you on. So thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Super excited to be with you today. And now all this month, we are talking about cancer survivorship. This is your research. This is your wheelhouse. This is what you teach. So let's get to it. Yes. What we're going to talk about today is provider bias in that lens of cancer survivorship. So can you tell us how that works and what that is? Yes. So I think most of us are now familiar with the term implicit bias um, because of all the things going on in the social environment, right? So implicit bias is basically those preferences, attitudes, stereotypes that we might have towards a person or towards a specific group of people. And so when you talk about provider bias, it's that implicit bias, but it's something that is held by a provider that might then potentially impact um, how they interact with that patient or client and even the decision-making process for that client. And the research suggests that it a lot of times occurs either subconsciously or unconsciously. And so we're not even realizing how we might be negatively impacting somebody's care. And how can that provider bias affect outcomes, affect treatment, and affect the survivorship of these cancer uh, or patients with cancer? I don't want to say cancer patients. I want to say patients, people with cancer. Correct. Oh, almost, yeah. almost, almost said it wrong. <laughs> no worries. Um, so when you think about provider bias, um, so the research suggests that most of us have a bias towards people that are of bigger body size or what we call obese, right? And so if you were a PT, a nurse, a physician, and you were talking with someone that is of a larger size and they're trying to articulate to you that maybe their knees hurt or maybe they've got, you know, some type of discomfort, um, provider bias might make you minimize their complaint. It might make you not do a full assessment because you're like, oh, it's just related to their weight. Or you might just go, well, you know, it's part of their lived experience because they chose to be fat. And so there are things that instead of us doing the standard care, we actually will deviate from it because of our bias. And so where we see that happen, where that has an influence on cancer survivorship is we know that every cancer survivor will have at least one physical impairment. And most of the time it's fatigue. But let's say that cancer survivor is someone who identifies um, as, a, as a sexual orientation that's not heterosexual. And you as a provider, you may believe that, you know, there's a moral or religious issue with that. So then when that person's talking to you about their fatigue as it relates to maybe their sexual activity or maybe just how it relates to their everyday life, you may decide 
consciously or unconsciously to not listen. Or you may decide that, you know what, that that's God's answer to, you know, their their lifestyle choice. So sorry, y'all. Just somebody's having a, a healthcare emergency right now. That's okay. Normally it's on my end because I'm right on Broadway. So there's always a siren going off. The listeners are used to it. Please continue. So, so I think when we think about, you know, someone's care, we're all talking about, you know, high quality care and standardized care and trying to minimize variations. But a lot of the variations we see are related to our biases. And so let's talk for a minute about, so we know outcomes may be different because of this provider bias. And, you know, we are talking about cancer survivorship, but there's a difference between you're alive, you lived, you survived, and the concept of survivorship. So can you talk a little bit about that and how, again, where that bias may play a role? Yes. So, The new definition for cancer survivor is that you become a survivor from the time of diagnosis. And so often we think of that as binary, right? Are you alive or not alive? When we talk about cancer survivorship, it really is this conversation about how well are you able to live your life, right? So Regardless of the cancer diagnosis, do you have the resources that you need to live the life that you choose at the best level that you so choose? And so when we talk about survivorship now, we want to know about all of your physical wellness. We want to know about your emotional wellness. We even talk about financial wellness because um, one of the side effects to cancer is financial toxicity. Um, cancer and its treatment is one of the number one causes of bankruptcy in the United States. So survivorship is really about how well are you able to live your life. And I would also have to assume that within that survivorship is the environment in which you're surviving. Oh, So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Beautifully stated. Um, So the hot topic everywhere right now is social determinants of health. And I think that is also just as true um, for cancer survivors. And I also want to say they're caregivers. Um, Because when we talk about cancer survivorship, we want to also talk about the co-survivors, right? So a lot of times we'll focus in on the cancer survivor. Um, But the work that we did in Arkansas a couple of years back, we went throughout the state talking with cancer survivors and caregivers. And the thing that cancer survivors told us over and over again was, I'm more concerned about my loved one. I'm more concerned about my co-survivor because everyone's focused on me as a person with cancer, but no one is thinking about the lived experience of of, of my caregiver. And um, I was at a conference once and they were talking about how that cancer and Alzheimer's diseases, Alzheimer's disease are two chronic diseases where we're actually seeing the caregivers die earlier than the actual survivor, right? Because of the caregiver burden. And so that's a trend that people are watching in the data. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's more of, it's more than just the patient, it's the caregiver. And it can also be their community. Do they have access to their treatments? Do they have access to the things they need to help them survive and survive well? Exactly. And so if you're living 
perhaps in an area that you don't have access to a lot of these things, might that also be something that can cause a bias in the provider? Oh, most definitely. So I think you have to think about all of the social determinants of health. So um, and the, the literature suggests that the medical access, like the healthcare access, accounts for about 20% of someone's health outcomes. Now, we do know that your ability to get to a provider of choice is important. And we also know that people typically don't want to travel more than a 20-minute drive to get to care. But there are some areas where people are driving hours. Um, I remember when I was in Kansas practicing, I had clients that would drive three to four hours one way to see me. And so when you think about cancer survivorship, and we know one of the number one um, complaints is fatigue, if you're driving three to four hours to get to therapy, then the expectation is you're going to work with the therapist for an hour, hour and a half. Um, It's just not a realistic journey. So we have to figure out a way to improve access, most definitely. We also have to think about the fact that it's not just can someone access care, but can they access high-quality care? So there is a time and a place for generalists. I totally love my generalists, right? Shout out to you. But then there are also times for specialists. And so there are certain geographical areas where it would be really difficult to find a specialist in cancer, be it an oncologist, be it a PT, be it an OT, be it a dentist. Um, So we have to think about those issues when we talk about healthcare access. Um, But then you talk about the 80%. And the 80% are going to be the things like what is the environment that that person with cancer has to live in? So like I'm here in Louisiana and Louisiana has a stretch of highway that's known as the cancer corridor, right? Because we have hundreds of production mills and industries that um, have a lot of waste products. And so because of that, we see this uptick in cancer prevalence. We see a different survivorship experience for those cancer survivors because they're constantly exposed to these environmental exposures. So I think, you know, that's one thing when you think about cancer survivorship is what is the environment in which they're living? Right now, we're talking to everybody about, you know, physical activity. The the APTA has just launched a physical activity campaign. But then you have to think about, okay, what what is their green space availability? Is it safe for them to be out and walking, right? Then you have to think about how are they going to fuel that movement? So are they close to grocery stores, right? Or, you know, community gardens. So I think when we think about cancer survivorship, healthcare is one piece, but then we also have to think about all those other determinants of health as well. And it's, does it not seem overwhelming? I mean, gosh, to me, it sounds seems so overwhelming. So how can, as providers, let's say as physical therapists, healthcare providers, what can we do to help lessen that, what, that overload? Yeah. So I think if we, number one, just all can agree that we have some level of implicit bias um, because we're all animals. So therefore, we are slightly tribal um, and animalistic, which means that you're naturally 
going to have a preference towards people who look like you or people who act like you or think like you. So you have to engineer the system to combat that. And the best way to do that is with screening tools, right? So could you introduce a screening tool that asks that client about their cultural beliefs and their lived experience, right? Um, so then that way you can incorporate that into their care. Because I was pulling up some articles that looked at um, the lived experience of Black or African-American and Hispanic or Latinx cancer survivors. And one of the things that they talk about is the fact that their provider, who is often you know, someone who identifies as white doesn't really ask them about their life. Um, they might give them instructions, but doesn't ask them about the context, right, in which they're supposed to implement this. And they're like, that's part of the reason why I don't follow those instructions. And then they get deemed for non-compliance, right, or, or non-adherence. And they're like, that person never asked me anything about me. So could you potentially introduce that as a screen? Um, in regards to kind of getting some information about their cultural values and beliefs, and then introduce a social determinative health screen. Um, so then you can find out kind of what their needs are. Because one of the articles I pulled up um, was talking about how that cancer survivors who have unmet um, social determinants of health are more likely to miss appointments. And so how often do we all get frustrated at that patient that's a no-show? Well, have you asked them about what's going on in their life and then help to align them or connect them with some community resources? Because that might be the root of the no-show, right? So I would say start off with some screening. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, we had a, a conversation um, last night on Clubhouse with a group of physical therapists, and it was about the female athlete but one of the things that was very clear is, are we asking the right questions? Mm -hmm. And I think that completely aligns with what you just said. So what is your food security like? What is your home security like, right? Do you have children? And this is another one. Do you have pets? Yeah. What if you have, what is your responsibility in your home life? If you have a dog, if you live alone, do you have to walk this dog? We just talked about fatigue being one of the major um, aspects. So what if they have to walk their dog three times a day and they have physical therapy that day? Well, which one do you think is not going to happen? Exactly. Great point. You know, so, so these and are all great questions to ask. So it's, we're asking questions but are we asking the right questions? And I think that was a solid point that you just made. I love that. Are you asking the right questions? And then are you listening? Mm. Well, even more important. <laughs> because like you just said, implicit bias can make us, our brains be like, blah, 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 blah. Oh, were you yes. saying something? <laughs> yes. Or, or, you know, often someone will say something, someone will tell us what they value. And then because we don't value that, we'll minimize it. And that might have actually been the secret sauce to them being able to achieve their healthcare goals. Yeah. Yeah. Another, uh, again, gosh, another great question that was brought up yesterday is, well, what kind of successes are you having right now? And then, like you said, that might be it. That might be the secret sauce. So if we're not tuned in, are we going to miss it? Oh, great point. And then I think often as providers, we 
tend to ask all the questions about the negatives. And especially when you add in your provider bias, your implicit bias, because we've been conditioned to think so many negative things about different subgroups. So we automatically start asking them all these questions about all of these negative things that we think should be occurring in their life. So I love this concept of saying, well, what's going well, right? What are the successes? Because then it, it also changes the dynamic of the relationship because then that helps you to understand what are the things that you could leverage, right, and expand. So I, I really think, you know, I, the other hat I wear, y'all, is I'm an educator. And so when we talk about culturally responsive pedagogy, one of the core elements is, are you coming into that exchange with a student from a positive lens? And I think we also have to think about that as a provider, um, because anytime you interact with a human, it's an exchange of energy. And if the energy I'm putting off to you is negative, that's going to impact you. So I think always kind of, you know, asking, you know, what's going on well, also thinking the best of the person that's sitting in front of you. Um, that's one thing that I've learned um, from the patients that I've been able to serve is they're like, there are some days that I just have to borrow the positivity from my providers, right? And I think we have to recognize that, that some days we are, we are that, that shining star, that good vibe for another human. But that requires us to actually believe in that other human and in their experience. So you got to see that human in front of you. Yeah, perfectly said, of course. Um, and that leads me to the next topic is, is, are you a trustworthy provider? And how do you determine that? Because is, is trust normally determined by the person in front of you? They feel you're a trustworthy provider? If you feel you are, are you biased towards yourself? Like, yeah, I'm awesome, right? So can you expand on that? And on that note, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and be right back. Tomorrow, April 20th, as part of NetHealth's three-part webinar series, best-selling author Stacey Fitzsimmons and Kelly Cassio of NetHealth will be talking about the three T's of creating revenue ownership beyond just the billing department, training, tools, and transparency. Head over to nethealth.com slash litzy to sign up. As a bonus, if you put litzy in the comment section in the registration page, sign up and show up. NetHealth will buy lunch for your office. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y. Sign up today. Oh, that's a good one. So there are two dynamics that occur in the therapeutic alliance. There is the trust that the patient or the client or maybe their caregiving unit bestows on us as providers, right? So that's the gift. And I think often as providers, we feel like we're entitled to trust and you're not. It's no different than any other relationship. It is something that someone is gifting to you is their trust. And then for us as providers, we have to prove to be trustworthy. And trustworthy is reliable and honest, right, and authentic. And so how do you know if you're trustworthy? Is that patient or client is actually the judge of that? It's not you. And so the definition of trustworthy may slightly vary for different patients, right, um, because they 
are actually the judge and the jury in that. So if you want to know if you're a trustworthy provider, you should probably ask, or maybe it should be part of your customer satisfaction survey. But I think, you know, when you think about provider bias or even implicit bias, um, most of us can sense when the person that we're interacting with is not being authentic, right? And so your bias thing can impact your ability to be, to be perceived as trustworthy as a provider or even just as a human. And so that's why it's really important for us to do the self-work to really kind of sit with ourselves, know what our triggers are. So, you know, who is it that we have these really negative perceptions of or thoughts about, and then really questioning that. So Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about watching your mind. And so my challenge to providers is even in that interaction with the client or the patient in front of you, you know, always kind of paying attention to what are the voices in your head saying, you know, as you're doing that interview, listening to that client, um, what, what is really else, what else is going on? You know, like when that patient says, you know, no, I've not been able to, you know, take my blood pressure medicine. Are you like, yeah, it's probably cause you know, you're doing X, Y, and Z with your money, or, you know, you're always telling a lie, but could you say to yourself, is that true? Cause Brene Brown talks a lot about asking yourself, is that the story I'm, t- is, you know, what's the story I'm telling myself? So could you really question that and then push back on a, push back on that a little bit? Cause you can condition yourself to have less bias, but you have to actively do it. And it takes work and it can be uncomfortable. Yes. It takes a lot of work. Takes a lot of work um, because it's easier just to believe your own little echo chamber that you've created. My next question is What is your advice to providers when it comes to dealing with cancer survivors? Because, as I spoke about in another podcast with uh, Kristen, is 100% of physical therapists are going to see someone who had cancer or has cancer. The numbers are there. So what is your advice to providers when working with this population and kind of checking themselves, quote unquote? Great question. So I'm, I'm going to say, first of all, we're going to go with your statement of ask the questions, um, because I have actually seen therapists, physicians care for a client and never know that they had cancer because we didn't do a complete history, Right. Um, and so you, you want to ask people that because the data says that one in two men will have cancer in their lifetime, one in three women. So just like you said, the odds are is that you're going to care for someone that has had cancer um, or currently has cancer. So ask the question. Number two is ask some details about it. Um, so now the standard is, is most cancer survivors will have what's known as a cancer survivorship plan that outlines the details of their tumor and also the treatment of it. And that's really beneficial to you as a provider because it'll help you be able to explain maybe some of the symptoms that they're reporting and also potentially anticipate some of the symptoms that they might have in the future. And there are things you could do to prevent that so that they have a better survivorship journey. Then number three, just listen. And listen with a beginner's eye and beginner ears, right? 
to be really curious about what that person is saying. Everything doesn't have to be judged. Because I'm, I always remind people there are 8 billion people on the planet. So there are 8 billion ways of doing this thing. There's no rights or wrongs. And then the fourth thing is a screen, right? Because I have to recognize as a provider that I'm going to ask the questions. I'm going to do the things that are often comfortable for me because you get in this routine. And then because this is a human sitting in front of me and everyone is diverse, I have to have some screening so that I don't miss anything right? Because often my pattern is based on what I like and the things that I do with the community that I'm, you know, most accustomed to. And so when I'm treating someone that might be different from me and everybody's different from me, then it's always good to have a screen. That way you make sure you're not missing anything. And then I would say the last thing is ask that person what is important to them. Because often as providers, we'll create a whole plan of care and never really ask people to rank or prioritize what's really important to them. We often make judgments for people and that's not our jobs as providers. We're, we're part of their team. So those would be the things that I would say to remind people of. And then, you know, I think everyone needs to kind of be doing a self-assessment of where they're at in regards to their own biases and then just getting curious about it. Be okay with talking with someone who doesn't think like you or who doesn't look like you. Yeah. Every point, excellent. And hopefully people were taking notes on that. And now, Lisa, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and what you're up to and what you're doing? Awesome. Um, So you can typically find me at the University of Louisiana Monroe. Um, So I am the associate, I'm associate professor and program director of the physical therapy program there. Um, Or you can find me at the Ujima Institute. So the Ujima Institute is a grassroots organization um, that we started to primarily look at um, ways in which we could collectively come together to address um, the health and wellness of Black communities. Because one of the things we didn't even talk about was health disparities as it relates to minority or marginalized communities. So when you think about black and brown cancer survivors, when you think about cancer survivors from LGBTQ communities, um, their disease burden is significantly different than the majority group. Um, And even things like just their mortality rates are significantly different. Um, That was some of the work that we did early on in Kansas City, um, where we found that, you know, African-American women were dying at rates three to four times higher um, than those of, of their, of, um, Caucasian peers. So yeah, of white peers. And is that because of lack of access? Was it because of lack of belief that they were ill or what, what did, Great what question. did your findings show? Um, so some of it was an access issue. So, um, when you think about where the, um, mammography centers located, Um, Also, the quality of the equipment at different centers varies as well. I think people often don't think about that. Um, Then also the providers. So there is often a difference in which providers are available to which subgroups. Um, Then also, and this is one thing that even I think PTs and healthcare providers should think about in general, is our typical office hours, right? So we tend to do eight to five. 
well, if I'm a second or a third shift worker, that might not work for me. Or if I work in an industry where I do a 12 hour shift, that may not work for me. And those are often jobs that black and brown um, community members are holding down. And so the very nature of how we deliver care often introduces some inequities. And I love that def So my favorite definition of inequities talks about how they are avoidable, right? So that difference in healthcare is actually avoidable if we would just stop and be intentional about the care and the way in which we deliver care to each other. Mm, gosh, so multifactorial, yeah. um, but changeable. Very changeable. I often say we're just one decision away. We're mm-hmm. one decision away from someone having a different type of cancer survivorship journey. Um, because for your audience, Fatigue is the thing that we often talk about, but the other things are like pain. Most cancer survivors are also experiencing a high level of anxiety. And in the United States, we're actually going the opposite direction in regards to our mental health resources, right? And cancer survivors need that support. Um, Other things that bother them are things like neuropathy and Mm -hmm. even like Mm -hmm. itching. Like, I cannot tell you how many cancer survivors are like, can you just make the itching stop? And people are like, well, that's not that big of a deal. But if I have a job. Torturous. Are you kidding me? And and if my job is customer service and my receptionist is scratching, I'm like, that impacts employment. So I'm like, all of these things are are part of the cancer journey where um, there are things we could do to prevent that or to attenuate it even things like weight management, there's so many parts of this cancer sequela that um, we could adjust, address early on. Um, The other thing that has always been really interesting to me in the data is, um, although we know cancer survivors are reporting these side effects of cancer and its treatment, only about 20 to 30% of them actually get referred to a provider to address them. So there are a lot of people living a life that has less quality, that really, that doesn't have to be. And to me, that's not kind. That is not kind. No. So you survived. Then what? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and especially when we know that there are clinicians and providers out there that could be helping. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, don't you think that this is uh, such an opportunity for the world of physical therapy? You know, we can be a conduit to uh, other providers. Yes. You know? So if they, the cancer survivor is only spending 10 minutes with the doctor, but hey, maybe they are coming to us. Maybe. Well, now mm-hmm. it's like an automatic PT referral at the time of diagnosis. At least that's what the guidelines say. Am I correct in that? That is the preferred guideline. Right. Um, so that's kind of the pre-rehab standards. Right. Is that you get that diagnosis, you get a PT um, eval so we can get some baseline data. Right, right, exactly. So might we also be the person to have the time to listen and like I said, be that conduit and that super connector to people they need. So I, something I to think about that. for the PT profession. You know, it's a huge opportunity for us to expand our reach, to be helpful and to make a difference in people's lives. And that's what we're supposed to be doing anyway. 
I totally agree. Because early on in my career, um, I went through patient navigation certification. And I remember people going, why would a PT be here? But it's a great place for us to be as a, as a rehab professional and especially as movement specialists, right? Because movement is the key to life. And so if I can help a cancer survivor figure out the resources they need to be able to keep their movement and function, that's a game changer in regards mm-hmm. to health and wellness, even cancer outcomes. Um, some of the data even suggests in regards to mortality, recurrence rates. So PT might, you know, often we talk about nurse navigation, but actually having a PT as a navigator is not a bad idea. Absolutely. Well, I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, Lisa, and um, as always. And last question is knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to your younger self? Maybe that fresh faced gal right out of PT school. Yeah. If I could talk to her, I would tell her to put herself first. Because oh. um, I think there is a reason why the, the triple aim moved to the quadruple aim, right? To include burnout of providers. Because often in our quest to provide care for others, we forget that we need to refresh and replenish ourselves. Um, how that is really, really important. We take better care of the equipment in our clinics and our hospitals than we do of our providers. And if it's not, if we can't take care of ourselves, we are the most important piece of equipment. Yes, we are. So we are the most important piece of equipment as it, um, if you wanted to talk about resources. And I think also in regards to when we think about our patient, uh, you know, client interactions, because I often ask therapists nowadays, are you causing harm? to the client that you're serving because of who you are. And maybe that's because you've not done your self-care. Maybe it's due to your provider bias. Maybe it's due to you need to upskill in regards to your clinical skills. But I think it's always good for us to ask ourselves, are we doing somebody harm and why? Excellent. And on that, we will end. So I will thank you so much for coming on, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So it's always a blessing to be in your space. Ah, Thank you so much. Mutual, mutual. And everyone, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. A huge thank you to Dr. Lisa Van Hoos and, of course, to our sponsor for today's episode, NetHealth. Again, sign up for their webinar, which is out tomorrow, April 20th, as part of their three-part mini-webinar series. Best-selling author Stacey Fitzsimmons and Kelly Cassio of NetHealth will be talking about the three T's of creating revenue ownership beyond just the billing department, training tools, and transparency. Head over to nethealth.com slash Litzy to sign up. And remember, if you put Litzy in the registration page, sign up and show up. NetHealth will buy lunch for your office. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.